Mercy. Thank you for the Word of God. Were it not for the Word of God, we would be left without any kind of direction or true objective word. And we need your truth today. And we pray that your spirit would illuminate us. Illuminate me even as I preach. Edit my plans and purposes to fit your purpose for Fisherville this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the Spanish Civil War that began in 1936 is considered by many historians to be the dress rehearsal for World War II. A lot of people don't realize that. General Emilia Mola was one of three who led a coup that led to this war, started this war in July of 1936. And when Mola invaded Madrid, he was asked, how many columns of soldiers do you have? And he said, five. Four at my back and a fifth column inside those walls. And since then, the fifth column has been known metaphorically as any group of people who undermine a larger group from within, usually in favor of an enemy group, the fifth column. 2,800 years before Mola, there was David and his men, the original fifth column. Now, the situation in our text has been coming to a head ever since David went to the land of the Philistines. He had, by deceit, won King Achish's trust, the king of Gath, despite the compromise that we see very evident in David, David never acted against Israel during this time. He never acted against King Saul. David, unbeknownst to anyone but his men, was functioning as a fifth column, if you will, for Saul and Israel. But at this point in chapter 29, it is very uncertain how David could escape being swept up by the Philistines' aggression against Israel. That has been something that we've been wondering about even ever since chapter 28. We were left on edge. If you look back at chapter 28, verse, verses 1 and 2, Achish had said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. And there the rider left us hanging. He changed scenes and he, he then focused the scene on Saul, who at this point is completely in turmoil. Samuel has died and you have the Philistine coming very aggressively, posturing themselves against Israel, and Saul is distressed by this. His greatest warrior is with the Philistines, David. And so what he does, because he has at this point apostatized, he, he consults a medium. 
And the, the medium apparently conjures up Samuel. Now, we don't believe that that's what the medium was able to do. We believe that God intervened there, and God was the one who brought Samuel, who has at this point died, and his spirit comes back to Saul, and he tells Saul, Israel is going to be defeated in this battle with the Philistines, and you're going to die, you and your sons. And we looked at that, and we said, that's a judgment. That's a judgment on Saul, because Every single one of us has a last night of life, right? We generally don't know when that last night will be. But for the Christian, one of the greatest blessings we have is assurance. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And for Saul, God comes to him through Samuel the prophet and says, you're going to die. You're going to die because of your apostasy. And so now the question is, is David going to play a role in Saul's death? The one who's been anointed to be Israel's future king. Well, the answer to that dilemma is going to be found in chapter 29. But we see at the very beginning that not all of the Philistines are on board with, with David. We see their objection in the first seven verses with David. Notice in verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. Now this text right here, verse 1, flashes back to chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. Which was a time prior to the armies gathering at, as we saw in chapter 28, verse 4, Shunem and Gilboa. This is a flashback. Verse 2, as the lords of the Pharisees, or Philistines, were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. Now this is a haunting verse. David and his men are with the Philistines as they are coming against the people of God. The anointed one. Israel's future king, the one in whom the Messiah will come. He's on the side of the Philistines. And this is intended to shock us. But keep in mind, David at this point has committed a folly that every believer is susceptible to. David was a clear believer in the Lord. He was what we would call a convert. Nonetheless, he had been seeking temporal salvation from the Philistines. And if we open our Bibles with humility and honesty, we will find ourselves on every page, including this page with no exception. You and I, for instance, would have grumbled by the quasi-tasteless manna in the wilderness. You and I would have questioned Moses' leadership at the Red Sea. You and I would have been attracted to the culture and the idolatry of the nation's in Palestine. And you and I would have been slow to believe 
that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That it was necessary that he die on a cross and be raised from the grave. And you and I would have been prone to look for security from Saul from other places rather than God. We're no different from David. And all of these examples are worship issues. In other words, David has worshipped his way to the Philistines. False worship, but worship. Keep in mind, we are all constantly worshiping. Every moment of our lives is spiritual. Every moment of our lives are acts of worship. We're always worshiping. There's never a moment. There's never a word. There's never a motivation. There's never a thought. There's never an act. There's never a reaction that is not somehow shaped by whatever has claimed the allegiance of our heart. And if it's not God, at any given moment, no matter what you confess, no matter what you profess, if it's not God in Christ at that moment, then it's something in the created order that has captured our allegiance. It's always the case. And David is no exception here. At this point, David, a true believer, has replaced spiritual hope with physical hope. Keep in mind, we could give him a break. He's been on the run for years at this point. He's been living in caves and having to provide for 600 men and their families not to mention his family. Yes, he has been anointed the future king. David is going to be enthroned as Israel's king. But in his discouragement with the weight, have you ever been discouraged with the weight? There's a whole lot of theology in Scripture about waiting on the Lord. That's God's strategy, by the way. He makes us wait to... You could say, purify us and prepare us for what he has for us. If we're not prepared for what he has for us, we'll make idols out of what he has for us. And so he, he puts us through the waiting game. And, and David at this point has been waiting. But in his discouragement with the waiting, he has for a time given up on God and given his heart to earthly security. Earthly security has captured his heart's allegiance. And as a result, the Philistines have become his plan B Messiah. There's never a moment we don't have a functional Messiah that we worship. Every moment of every day, we are worshiping. We are worshiping someone or something. The Philistines had become his plan B Messiah because he perceived at this moment that the Philistines could give him what the Lord could not. And here's the problem with this approach. 
trying to, to wed earthly security from the Philistines with the Philistines and eternal security with God. Those two notions are at war with each other. Where you're seeking to find your security, your identity, your worth, your significance, your hope in earthly things, while at the same time finding your eternal security with God. Those two ideas are two different religions. They're at odds with each other. They're at war with each other. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? In the end, David could not maintain these two opposing allegiances. It's never been done, and it never will. It never will work. The Lord won't let it work. And if you try to make it work, it's just going to cause greater heartache for you and for those in your world, for those closest to you, your spouses, your families, the world in which you live, where God has placed you. God will not let it work. And we begin to see that worked out in verse 3. Notice with me. So David and his men, verse 2, were passing on in the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? Hebrews here being a derogatory term for them. And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king? Of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. And so the commanders of the Philistines here, they're going to reject Achish's defense. Notice verse four. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. That is, they were angry with Achish. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? They recognize his Lord, in this sense, is Saul. Lord being kind of just a... A word here for, for commander, for king. Would it not be with the heads of the men here? So the last thing they want in battle, as they go to battle against Israel, was for David with his armed men to follow them at their rear. They recognized the problem with that. Their reasoning was this. David could turn on them. David could turn on them in battle. And what better way for David to reconcile with Saul than to notice than with the heads of the men here? That's what they see. And these Philistines tacitly, 
When I say tacitly mean, I, I don't mean that they recognize this as we recognize it, because they did not have the scriptures. But they, they unwittingly recognize something that takes us back all the way to Genesis 3.15. And that is this. From Genesis 3.15 on, there would be enmity between the seed of the woman, that is the people of God, and the seed of the serpent, that is the evil one. They intuitively know, knew that ultimately a David, a David who was trusting in and committed to Yahweh, a David, a man after God's own heart, cannot abide with them, the Philistines, who hate God because of this divinely established enmity between the people of God and the world. They intuitively knew that. It can't work. Of course, this enmity is established in part by God for our protection. It's a blessing for the people of God to be at enmity with the world. What Genesis calls the seed of the serpent. Why is that? Because we're not glorified yet. We still have that part of our unredeemed flesh that finds the world very alluring. And the reason we find it alluring is because it promises immediate gratification to our senses. And as a result, if there was no enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, we would be subsumed by the passing pleasures and false promises of the world. But our incompatibility with the world is a guard for us. It's a grace. And that, by the way, is why your short excursions to, to the land of the Philistines never profits. That's God's grace on you. That's God's mercy on you. But there's a more apparent concern from these Philistines, from these commanders. They also knew the fanfare David had experienced when he had beheaded their champion, Goliath. And hence the language here. Notice here. He's, they say, what better way to reconcile with his Lord than with the heads of the men here? This is likely a reference to Goliath. They knew he had beheaded their champion. And now they believed he was going to do the very thing to them in order to reconcile with Saul. Verse 5 supports that notion. Notice in verse 5. Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? 
Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. They've heard about that song that was sung in Israel. This is the third time, in fact, that this song has been brought up in 1 Samuel. Originally, when it was sung, we saw the problem there. It provoked Saul. It provoked him to jealousy and hatred towards David. And we remember from that that no one can make me jealous. No one can make me hate. But God can use people, God can use circumstances to expose what's already there. Saul's heart was already corrupt. And when he heard that song, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. What was already there was exposed. Jealousy, murderous rage towards David. So originally, it's what provoked Saul. But here, it's a reminder to these commanders of the Philistines that David can't fully be trusted. But Achish was not convinced. Notice in verse 6, Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. Oh, the irony. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you that's the second time. We're going to see it three times, by the way, in this passage. Three times Achish affirms David's blamelessness, even though we know and David knew he wasn't fully blameless. I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. One of the ironies of chapter 29, in fact, is that half of this chapter is spent on Achish affirming David's blamelessness when actually David was not loyal to Achish at all. But Achish didn't know that. He wasn't aware of that. And so here we see for the second time him affirming David's loyalty and his blamelessness but all of this based on David's deception. Because remember, he had been out and about warring on Israel's ancient enemies, all the while telling Achish that he was doing the business of the Philistines, working for the Philistines, working on their behalf. But David was a, a fifth column. Indeed, in another sense, there was no evil in David with regard to his betrayal of the people of God. During this entire time, he was faithful to Israel. He was faithful to Saul. But more importantly than all of this is the secret providence of God in protecting David from himself. Praise God for that. His secret his wise, most holy works of providence that we don't always recognize but is always at work 
And God's providence is seen ironically by closing doors here for David. Look at the second part of verse 6. Nevertheless, yes, you've been blameless, David. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. That is the commanders. Achish was one of five kings. They, they, they were kings of these cities, and then you had the commanders. But he was clearly listening and capitulating to these commanders, even though he had a higher rank than these commanders. But the irony is clear. These commanders are actually correct. As far as the interest of the Philistines go, David was not to be trusted. David was not an asset. He was a liability. Hence, verse 7. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Achish is saying, you can't go and fight with us. So go back. And at this point, David sighs a sigh of relief. Not so fast. That brings us to David's complaint. It's quite remarkable in verses 8 to 11. David said to Achish, what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now? that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King. To be perfectly frank, if I'm reading this fresh, as if I've never read this before, I am surprised by David's response. I would think that David would be relieved because he's found himself between a rock and a hard place. It's one thing to depart Israel. It's another thing to be appointed as one of the soldiers for the Philistines, their perennial enemies, to go and fight against Israel. But I think, I believe, that David is still acting deceitfully. Note, he calls himself, he still calls himself Achish's servant once again. And we already know that's not the case. He's never been Achish's servant. All the while he was in the land of the Philistines, he was using the Philistines for his protection from Saul while doing the work of destroying Israel's enemies so that when he was enthroned in the future, those enemies would have been taken care of. He's never been Achish's servant. We already know that's the case. But note these ambiguous words. It's really interesting here. He says... What have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? Now, it's clear that Achish understood my Lord, the king, to refer to him and the enemies to refer to Israel. As you read this, that's what is very apparent. But we know David has already used this language on two different occasions. My Lord, the king, to refer to Saul. 
when he and Saul had that first conversation at the, the cave of Engedi, chapter 24. He acknowledged Saul as his Lord, as his king, as the anointed one. And then at the hill of Hekilah, the same thing. He had acknowledged Saul as his king. Furthermore, he had rejected the language of enemy when his soldiers had referred to Saul as their enemy. David had renounced that. And when Abijah had called David their enemy, or called Saul their enemy, David had renounced that. So in light of the fact that David has previously used this language to refer to Saul, I think the writer wants us to read between the lines. That David's expressing his desire to fight against the enemies of his lord the king refers to Israel and Saul, and he knows that Achish believes it refers to him. I believe David is acting deceitfully here. And if that is the case, and I believe that it is, in light of the fact that he's been fighting all of these battles all of this time against Israel's ancient enemies, David's plan may have been to go with the Philistines into battle with Israel, but in some way to turn on the Philistines and function as a fifth column. That's my thought on this. But what David didn't know, but we do know, because of chapter 28. Remember chapter 29 flashes back to after verse 2 in chapter 28. But in chapter 28 verse 19, we have learned this. The Lord will give Israel with you, Saul, into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. What David didn't know is that God had already ordained that Israel was going to be defeated and that Saul was going to die. And hence the beautiful providence in protecting David from his folly. Imagine him going into a battle against Israel, even if he had turned in the battle that Israel would lose and Saul would die. God is protecting him. Notice in verse 9, And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Here we see it again. The third time he affirms David's blamelessness, though David was not above reproach. And again, we're reminded that these commanders were just not open to David joining them in battle. So who does the Lord use to rescue David from his folly? The commanders of the Philistines. That's remarkable providence. Unwitting but very effective servants of God. Just like he used Cyrus. He describes Cyrus, the king of Persia, as his servant, as his anointed one, even though Cyrus himself 
did not know, did not love God. This is remarkable providence. Notice in verse 10 and 11 as this thing ends. Now, then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. And so the text ends by noting that the outcome of David's conversation with Achish was that David would head south as the Philistines went north into battle against Saul. And so David was protected from the, the battle that would end Saul's life. And I think one of the most important applications of this chapter is to ponder how the Lord's mercy still pursues his people in the midst of their folly. That is so comforting. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't discipline his people. He disciplines us in our folly because he loves us too much to allow us to persist in our folly and in our sin and in our compromise. And yet, how strong, how tenacious is his mercy. David would later write in Psalm 23, verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful truth? Surely goodness and mercy, they follow us. It's like we're under surveillance. They follow us all the days of our life. His goodness, God's goodness follows us to provide for us. His mercy follows us to pardon us when we compromise, when we sin. Maybe Proverbs 19.21 is an apt summary of this chapter. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Isn't that comforting? I find that greatly comforting. I have my purposes. I have my plans. But I recognize how fallen my plans and purposes are. They're, they're contaminated by finitude and, and a lack of wisdom and a lack of knowledge and a lack of understanding. I am so grateful that the Lord's purposes prevail over mine. Of course, with that said, there's almost no mention of the Lord in this chapter. In fact, he's only brought up once, and that by Achish, a pagan. Isn't that remarkable? Why is that? As we said a few weeks ago, as David, the psalmist, the sweet songwriter, goes into the land of compromise, he gets writer's block. You don't see David worshiping God in the land of the Philistines. When you have sin, when you have compromise in your life, it destroys your fellowship with God. So there's no mention of God from Saul or David's lips during this time. The only one who mentions the Lord is a pagan, Achish. But we hardly need to read the name of the Lord to know that the Lord is here. The Lord is here in this chapter. 
Just as he was and is in the book of Esther. The one book of the Bible where the Lord's name is never mentioned. Do you realize that? It's the book of Esther. And what is Esther about? It's about this evil man named Haman who wants to exterminate the people of God. And though we do not read the name of the Lord, we see his hand throughout as he protects his people from extermination. And in this chapter, we don't see his name, but we see his hand. And that's a good word for us. Because sometimes we feel like God is asleep. God has abandoned us. We, we have those seasons. And yet, here in this chapter, we're reminded that God is ever at work disciplining his kids and yet present by his mercy and his wise providence. The Lord saved David that day from future ruin. There's no way he could have become the king of Israel if he had gone into that battle. He also saved his reputation. Consider the repercussions, even if he had been successful in his foolish plan. What foreign king would ever trust David in the future had David become king? The Lord's will is often achieved in ways unseen. Now, it was disappointing to David. It's clear. He gets upset. He, he's upset because he has his plan. He has his purposes. This is the way things are supposed to work out. And because these commanders do not look upon David with favor, because they don't trust him, the door is closed. And David is very frustrated with that door being closed. But God was protecting David by that closed door. Isn't that comforting to us? I think it's going to be stunning for us all. When we look back from the perspective of heaven, and I'm talking about believers here. David was a believer. Not everybody's going to heaven. But when we look back from the perspective of heaven to discover how many of the Lord's interventions that frustrated us at the time, that frustrate us now, closed doors, frustrating thwartings of our plans and purposes. When we look back, we see how God rescued us and saved us from our folly. That's David in this chapter. But having said that, one of the consequences, again, there's consequences, even with mercy, even with grace, there's consequences for our sin. God disciplines his children when we sin, when we compromise, when we decide to do it our way. And one of the consequences of David's sin, David's venture into worldliness, if you will, into the land of the Philistines, is that he was absent from that great battle when Israel needed him most. He wasn't there. 
because he had preached propaganda to his heart, remember it goes all the way back to that, chapter 27, because he had preached propaganda to his heart rather than the promises of God, David pursued a course of action that made him useless in the day of his people's need. He was utterly useless. He was absent in that day. And that same truth applies today. With many believers. Now, I do not believe there is a category called the carnal Christian. When we're done with Samuel, my plan is for us to preach in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to address that issue. I do not believe there's anything called a carnal Christian. All right? I don't believe there's anybody who's inherently worldly who can call themselves a believer. But I do believe believers, like Lot, who flirt so close to the edge of worldliness, they may be saved in the end through their weak and yet nonetheless saving faith, but in the spiritual battles of our generation. Great Commission. The building up of the body of Christ, discipleship, evangelism of the lost, they'll have contributed virtually nothing. What a sad, sad way to spend your life. You're a believer, but like David, you weren't there when it mattered. Like 1 Corinthians 3.15 describes this person. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. And that's why 1 Samuel 29, in its own way, points us to someone greater. In other words, not only do, do we need someone greater, David needs someone greater. Even with these glorious remarks by Achish, and David had maintained, maintained his reputation with Achish, hadn't he? Three times we see him affirming David. We know, and David knows, that he's not the blameless man that Achish believes him to be. But one would come. One would come who would be, and more. More than we could ever have dreamed or conceived. You see, David's trial before the Philistines, and that's what it is. He's placed on trial before these commanders. That trial takes us to a no less ironic and paradoxical event when Jesus was put on trial before Pontius Pilate. Like David, Jesus had been accused of subversion. The commanders of the Philistine armies were accusing David of subversion, and Jesus was accused of subversion. Luke 23, listen to verse 2. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Verse 5, he stirs up the people. But unlike David, these accusations weren't true. They weren't true at all. 
David's were. And just as David was vindicated three times by Achish, we see it in the text, verse 3, verse 6, and verse 9, his blamelessness is affirmed. Jesus was vindicated three times by Pontius Pilate. The third time, verse 22 of chapter 23 of Luke. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt. But Jesus' vindication far surpassed David's, doesn't it? David's righteousness, his faithfulness towards Israel and Saul has been preserved by deceit. He remained faithful to Israel. He remained faithful to Saul, the king, but it came by deceit. He was deceiving Achish. Of Jesus, though, 1 Peter 2 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. No deceit. Not one moment of his life. Finally, Achish was weak and gave way to David's accusers. He, he capitulated to David's accusers. He knew that David, or believed David, was blameless, but he gave in to his accusers. And Pontius Pilate, although knowing Jesus was blameless, gave way, capitulated to his accusers. But the consequence of their respective capitulations was radically different. David was required to return to Ziklag. Jesus was required to go to a cross. But the similarity is also glorious. Both David's and Jesus' trials turned out to be a major step into them coming into their respective kingdoms, their respective thrones. We'll see that with David's narrative. David becomes, in a small way, the savior of his people. Jesus, the savior of the world. And, and it's in beholding him it's in seeing him high and lifted up, exalted as the pure and blameless one. The one who never was deceitful. The one who fulfilled all righteousness. The one who loved the Lord his God with his heart, mind, soul, and strength and his neighbor as himself every moment of the day to cover my lovelessness. The one who remained righteous to cover my unrighteousness. And the one who went to a cross and laid down his life because of my deceit, because of my compromise, because of my tendency to run to the land of the Philistines. It's in beholding him, exalting in him, savoring him, that our David-like tendency to trust in the securities and the pleasures, the Passing pleasures and false promises of this world are overcome by this new affection.
And that's why this chapter is so important for every believer. But it's also important to the unbelievers here. And I no doubt believe there are some here. The reality is the believer struggles with the tendency to migrate to the land of the Philistines every day. But you live there. And you abide there. It's your home. In fact, it has become the most comfortable place on the planet for you. But it doesn't have to be that way. If you will humble yourself and recognize that that way leads to death, that there's no abundant life in that way. There's no eternal life in that way. But that God in His Son Jesus has made a way. And if you will come to Jesus, He says, I have come that you might have life, abundant life. Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. If you will trust in what God has done for sinners in Jesus. Through his life and his death on the cross for our sin, his resurrection from the grave for our part. And the Bible says, you will be delivered from the power of darkness. You will be delivered from the land of the Philistines into the land of promise. Let's pray. Father, all of us struggle with over-fascination with physical salvation, physical comforts, physical pleasures, earthly security. This text is here to remind us it's an illusion. Thank you for David's example. But we also thank you for the one in whom David points, who came to redeem us from that mentality, that tendency. Lord, I pray that as we behold Jesus, that the expulsive power of this new affection would replace these very natural but carnal tendencies in us all. And I pray, Lord, if there's any here today that have never trusted in Jesus, Lord, that they would come to see me, that they would come to talk to me about what it means to be converted to Jesus Christ, what the gospel is, what eternal life is. We pray for that. We pray today would be the day of salvation for those who have not yet believed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand and as we sing.